2: In London, this is The Economist. Welcome to Tasting Menu, an irresistible spread of stories sampled from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And on today's menu, is American democracy under threat? What to do if you feel queasy in a driverless car? And the last blast of the trumpet for Hugh Masekela. But first, our cover line this week was Dr. You. Today's healthcare systems are inefficient and antiquated. Patients need knowledge and control over their own care. We argued that a revolution is coming.
0: No wonder they are called patients. When people enter the healthcare systems of rich countries today, they know what they will get. Prodding doctors, endless tests, baffling jargon, rising costs and, above all, long waits. Some stoicism will always be needed – Because healthcare is complex and diligence matters. But frustration is
2: boiling over. Before you throw away whatever you're holding at the nearest wall, in frustration that you can't get a doctor's appointment, wait a second, the solution is at hand. It might even be in your hand. Technologies such as the smartphone
0: allow people to monitor their own health. The possibilities multiply when you add the crucial missing ingredients – Access to your own medical records and the ability easily to share information with those you trust. That allows you to reduce inefficiencies in your own treatment and also to provide data to help train medical algorithms. You can enhance your own care and everyone else's too.
2: Your height, weight and temperature may not seem like the stuff of revolution, but remember, information is power. Someone worried about their heart
0: can now buy a watch strap containing a medical-grade monitor that will detect arrhythmias. Apps are vying to see if they can diagnose everything from skin cancer and concussion to Parkinson's disease. Some think that changes in how quickly a person swipes a phone's touchscreen might signal the onset of cognitive problems.
2: And it's reassuring to remember that your eye doctor can only get better at its job.
0: Artificial intelligence, AI, is already being trained by a unit of Alphabet, Google's parent company, to identify cancerous tissues and retinal damage. As patients' data stream from smartphones and wearables, they will teach AIs to do ever more. Future AIs could, for instance, Provide automated medical diagnosis from a description of your symptoms. Spot behavioural traits that suggest you are depressed or identify if you are at special risk of cardiac disease.
2: You know what they say, an apple or an android a day keeps the doctor away. I wish they'd told me that before my cold set in.
0: Plenty of countries are now opening up their medical records, but few have gone as far as Sweden. It aims to give all its citizens electronic access to their medical records by 2020. Over a third of Swedes have already set up accounts. Studies show that patients with such access have a better understanding of their illnesses and that their treatment
2: is more successful. But if we're to share the innermost workings of our body, what are the risks? And are the benefits worth it? To find out, read our cover story in the latest issue of The Economist on newsstands and online at economist.com. And do tell us what you think of tech's takeover of healthcare. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. Good clean tech now permeates every corner of our lives, so naturally its designers have to cope with our messy human bodies. Driverless cars have ditched the pesky person at the wheel. Unfortunately, they do still need a passenger. And as anyone regularly banished to the back seat could have told them, humans have a terrible propensity to funny tummies. An article in the science and technology section took a deep breath and concentrated hard on how designers of self-driving vehicles are helping passengers avoid motion sickness.
0: Expectations are high among those boosting the idea of self-driving cars that people will be able to do other things, such as reading, working on a laptop, or having a nap when riding in such a vehicle. But for many, that is an unlikely prospect. Apart from those who have no intention of even getting into an autonomous car – Some of those people will be looking out of the window because it helps to avoid nausea, dizziness and vomiting, particularly if they are among the 5-10% to of the population who regularly experience the unpleasant symptoms of motion sickness. Surprisingly for such a common affliction, it's still little understood, and theories vary. If someone is looking at a stationary object within a vehicle, such as a magazine, his eyes will inform his brain that what he is viewing is not moving. His inner ears, however, will contradict this by sensing the motion of the vehicle. The resulting confusion, at least according to one theory, leads his brain to conclude that he is hallucinating because he has ingested poison, hence the need to throw up to rid the stomach of any toxins.
2: But a light bulb has just gone on two researchers at the University of Michigan have just won a patent for an array of small lights to appear in a sufferer's peripheral vision.
0: Such lights, most probably small panels of LEDs, could be fitted into a headset, a hat or onto the frame of a pair of glasses.
2: This get-up would usefully counteract the effect of looking a bit too cool in your driverless car, but it saves your stomach, so who's judging? For the wearer of such kit...
0: The effect would be to provide a visual response that corresponds to the movements the inner ear is detecting. So, for instance, a panel of LEDs positioned at the side of each eye might flash from the front to the back when a vehicle is moving forward, but stop when it is braking. The speed of the flashing and the brightness of the lights could be tuned to match the intensity of the movement, such as the vehicle's rate of acceleration.
2: It's not yet clear whether this system could be adapted to help with planes, trains and boats, as well as automobiles, but the innovation could positively spew forth
0: benefits. And for taxi companies like Uber and Lyft, which are planning to offer autonomous vehicles that can be summoned by an app, the flashing lights
2: could save a fortune in cleaning bills. Delightful. Moving swiftly on with eyes straight ahead, let's tune in to the week at Economist Radio. The Economist Intelligence Unit has just published its annual Democracy Index. Worryingly, world democracy is looking queasy. Less than 5% of people live in full democracies. More than half of the countries analysed saw their democratic health decline. So I interviewed Stephen Levitsky, professor of government at Harvard University, for the latest episode of The Economist Asks. And his main concern is the former champion of global democracy, America itself. Donald Trump may seem all talk, but Mr. Levitsky explained why he believes careless talk costs liberties. Two core democratic institutions, right? The electoral process and the free press. One of the things that Trump's bluster has done is seriously erode public confidence in those two institutions. Right? It's hard to think of an institution more core to our democracy than our elections. Trump, both as candidate and as president, has repeatedly told the public that our electoral process is rigged, that the elections are not fair, that they're that they're fraudulent, which is an outright lie. And as and you see in public opinion polls, particularly among Republicans, that confidence in our electoral process has plummeted. To hear his recommendations for what concerned citizens of all political leanings can do to protect democracy, subscribe to The Economist Asks. It's on Apple Podcasts or your other favourite podcast app. And as its host, I'd be especially grateful. Our guest on Money Talks, our finance and economics programme, was also concerned about America slipping down global rankings. Jim O'Neill has been chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. He's also been a former advisor to the British government, but he's best known for coining the term BRIC in 2001 for Brazil, Russia, India and China, four countries whose rapid development shifted the balance of global economic power. He cuts straight to the chase.
3: I think Trump and his colleagues are a bit stuck in the dark ages. This idea that the US you know, make some noise about something and we all shudder. You know, in the early 80s, when I first entered the finance industry, that that for sure was true. But, you know, that's, what is it? That's 38 years ago or something. And I think a lot of Trump's mind and his guys are stuck in that kind of time warp. I don't really see the US as the key driver of global trade anymore.
2: Lord O'Neill there on Money Talks, and it's published every Tuesday. And if all that is making you a bit anxious, what about some nice bread and circuses? 2018 is the 250th anniversary of the creation of the circus as we know it. In the latest episode of our special series, The World, in 2018, one of our arts critics, Isabella Monson, explored how the big top conquered the big world.
0: Circus became very popular very quickly because it speaks in a visual language. It was very exportable. And so, for the 1780s, it spread across Europe. And then in 1793, the first circus was established in America, and George Washington attended the first season. America was expanding west, and so circus actually adapted to reach the audiences who were living in the frontier towns by becoming more mobile. And it did that by inventing the canvas tent which later became a big top, and kind of mainstay of the travelling circus.
2: To find out what else is on the agenda this year, you can listen to the rest of our series on the world in 2018 online, or you can go to your podcast app. Roll up, roll up now for the other greatest show on earth. At the weekend, over 100 million people across North America alone tuned in to the one, the only, the Super Bowl. With audiences like that, A 30-second ad can sell for upwards of $5 million. And as an article in our America section found, companies fight for every yard to get those spots. The ads they make are getting ever more extravagant.
3: During Super Bowl 50 in 2016, American viewers got to watch Heinz's uplifting Wiener Stampede commercial with Daxons dressed as hot dogs gambling in slow motion across a meadow. An ad for T-Mobile featured executives from a rival company badgering Drake, a rapper, to clutter up his lyrics with legalese.
2: However, not every Super Bowl viewer is born equal in the eyes of advertising.
3: Canadians watching the same game were treated to a dull slideshow for Sun Life Insurance.
2: But last year, the Canadian regulator gave American advertisers an opening.
3: It ruled that access to American made-for-the-occasion ads was in the public interest. CTV, which had broadcasting rights in Canada, continued to show local ads. But most Canadians can watch Fox, which showed such treats as a Donald Trump-inspired shampoo commercial. CTV lost nearly 40% of its viewers during the game.
2: Bell Media, which owns CTV, appealed to the referee, arguing Canadian ads protect Canadian culture and tactically ignoring the fact that Drake, the rapper from the famous 2016 ad, is Canada's best-known hip-hop star.
3: Its argument did not move the Supreme Court. On January 24th, it refused to suspend the regulator's decision. Canadians watching the game, on NBC this time, will see its ads too. When the event is the Super Bowl, the ads are part of the show not interruptions of it. That is what the regulator said. Bell Media and the NFL have now appealed to Mr Trump to intervene. That is surely a Hail Mary pass. Hugh Masakela.
2: And finally, this week's obituary was a tribute to someone who really knew how to put on a show. Hugh Masakela anti-apartheid activist and trumpeter extraordinaire, has died aged
3: 78.
2: The parcel arrived
1: by Courier Post. It was big, rectangular, and had come all the way from America, where 17-year-old Hugh Masekela knew nobody except the folk, like Glenn Miller or the Andrews sisters, whose music rang out of the family's wind-up gramophone. He tore off the paper, flicked the clasps and found a used FX Hula trumpet sent by Louis Armstrong. Wild with joy, he leapt out into the dusty streets of his township outside Johannesburg, where the worn-down people stopped to stare at him. His horn became his weapon in apartheid South Africa. Round it, he formed the Jazz Epistles, who cut the first record ever made there by a black band. When they played the Ambassadors in Cape Town, all races filled the hall. The breaking point was the Sharpeville Massacre of 1960, when 69 African protesters were killed by white police, and public gatherings of more than 10 blacks were banned. Live music vanished. He left for the Manhattan School of Music and, for three decades, lived in America. His music crossed and recrossed the wide Atlantic. He never meant to leave Africa for so long. It lay at the heart of his playing, in tribal chants and folk songs, and especially in bakanga, the music of the illegal bars or shabines where miners in the townships would go after work to get stuporous on sorghum beer. He combined this with American bebop, and the horn style he liked best, lazy phrasing and long notes to show off his fat, beautiful tone, singing and playing in much the same register. In time, he added samba and calypso grooves, a bit of rock, a bit of rap, a potpourri from the whole African diaspora. Jazz did not begin to cover it. Miles Davis, his idol among trumpeters, had urged him to be different anyway. Nobody knows the shit that you know.
2: He forged it all together into music that shone like the gold from South Africa's mines, but could cut like a knife. Soweto blues,
1: searingly sung by his sometime lover, sometime wife, Miriam Makeba, marked the killing of hundreds of young protesters by the police in 1976. Just a little atrocity, deep in the city of gold. His horn lamented that he could not return, even to bury his mother, that his records were banned there. Paul Simon's Graceland album of 1986 seemed to do as much for African music as he had, pushing towards freedom. But his trumpet always gave him a sharper edge. The next year he was singing Bring Back Nelson Mandela with Raised Fist, his anthem for the anti-apartheid struggle.
2: His eventual return was victorious, to play the country's concert halls in fine clothes and with a new trumpet. But Brahu was just as
1: pleased to play to a barefoot crowd among the shacks of Alexandra Township, outside the city, giving them a taste of his undiminished joy and showing what one poor black boy could
2: do. Well, that's the final verse of this week's episode of Tasting Menu. And if you'd like an encore, you can find more of all the stories and interviews featured here online. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.